Welcome to Story Archaeology's Stories in the Landscape, Conversations on Mythology. In the fourth of these conversations, I get to talk to storyteller, genealogist and town planner, Jamie Madden. Well, today I get to talk to Jamie Madden. Jamie is a story discoverer, a storyteller, something of a genealogist and, oh yes, an affordable housing expert trained as a town planner. But that's quite enough for me. Look, over to you, Jamie. Would you introduce yourself? Hi, Chris. It's a great honor to have this conversation with you today. I don't know that I can quite lay firm claim to all of that, but it's nice to hear. Um, and mostly, I'm just excited to have the conversation with you. Story archaeology came into my life in the last few years in a time of incredible change and uh, has really helped me shift perspectives, imagine other futures by connecting to some of the older parts of our heritage. I now live in Seattle with my wife and our daughter, Niamh, where uh, unfortunately the most Irish thing in Seattle is often the weather. We just discovered we're both 13 degrees and drizzly at the moment. <laughs> we are indeed 13 degrees and drizzly at a time when, so I gather, uh, parts of the UK are suffering from about 30 degrees. Uh, it's <laughs> yeah, and the, the Texans are probably the same right now. Um, so it's not that here. Yeah, and outside of uh, managing my toddler, a, a literal bonsi, I work to create affordable housing and am currently working on a book about the topic. Um, I'm myself Boston Irish. I'm just old enough to remember dinner table conversations about the troubles, about uh, the ways Boston Irish were helping or could help. And also, I grew up in a wildly diverse place called Randolph, just south of the city of Boston, where there were 50-some languages spoken in my schools. And I just got a feeling, even as a young child, I couldn't be on the playground and not know where my family was from, not know my heritage. I felt like we we're all very proud of it. I went on to become the first person in my family lines, any side, uh, since coming to America, and, and likely before, to go on to university. I earned my master's in city planning at MIT. And while I was there, I really fell in love with creating affordable housing as the way I would give back while paying the bills. But while I was there, I stumbled into a research specialty in, within city planning that focused on understanding urban development and change through really understanding the histories of people's migration. Where did they come from? Why? How? When? Where did they end up? The stories of the places and how they changed them. And then the planning responses. That's Tinchianicus. And that really is, go on anyway. Yeah. So, you know, it's funny. It's only last year that I heard the word itself, Tinchianicus, and I was so immediately entranced. I said, that that's what I've been studying. There's, there's an Irish word for this thing I've been doing for the last decade uh, under Professor Tony Lee. And I ended up listening to your entire back catalog. I, I stumbled on the podcast after I Googled Tinchianicus. And so many themes outside of the Tinchianicus also just felt incredibly relevant to my life where I sit in Seattle in 2020, 2021, 2022, um, the importance of learning indigenous knowledge for sustainability, the importance of learning about oral cultures and alternate ways of transmitting knowledge, um, exploring the rules of a reparative justice system. That's a reparative justice is a very hot topic here, but I had to special order Fergus Kelly's book uh, from Dublin after I heard about it on your podcast. So it's just, it's thrilling to to see these alternate ways of understanding and to understand just some of our, you know, random Boston Irish cultural traits are shared all the way back, the the hyperbolic humor, the sarcasm, all, all the kind of Irishness that we claim, much of it shows up in the stories and that's just fun to see. Yeah. 
It's surprising how much of that goes back a very long time, even the humour. And as you probably noticed through some of the podcasts, we suddenly discover a joke that may go back to medieval times or even earlier. In The Children of Turin, Brian and his brothers are sent off on a quest to gather up a large number of unlikely magical treasures. And at one point, they decide to go to Athens, disguised as poets. However, when they have failed to achieve their immediate goal, they kind of say, well, we knocked on the gate, but they were all out. I suppose it's a wry Irish take on a classical style story. <laughs> Indeed, yes. Though that goes back right at least to the 15th century and probably further back. You get these things all, all the time. But yeah, you really have summed up the role of the Dinyanikas. As you know, the word translates as the law of prominent place names, and it's a shining treasure of the early Irish texts. Now, just to talk for a minute about what the Dintanicus is, although I, I suspect most of our listeners have now come across the word, it represents a, a wonderful collection, perhaps a better word is a collation of extant lore, tales and memories of origin stories. But what's extra special and what I love is the way that the collection includes all the different variants of Orion stories. It goes, well, if you don't like this one, here's another one. Why don't you try that? Now, another thing that's really great is its extraordinary uses it has and the way it expands and embroiders stories, making connection and adding in depth and detail to textually recorded tales. And I suppose the other thing I was going to mention is that, of course, some stories really are only available from the Dean Helicus, and uh, Shinnan is actually one of those. It's clearly located among the origin stories. Yeah, in a less serious way, in Boston, we've long used what I guess you could call Dinshanicus just to navigate the city. Um, I've been bad on many occasions giving newcomers, including my wife, directions with words that don't appear on any road signs. Uh, just the other day, my brother Sean asked me for directions to the Angorta Moore Memorial in Boston. And I said to him, get off at Downtown Crossing, head up Washington Street to where Ma used to work. If you hit Government Center where they demolished everything, you've gone too far. It's on the corner that has old buildings only on one corner because the other three were part of the Great Fire. And, you know, and Sean doesn't know all those stories necessarily, but when you're walking up the street and you notice there's this one corner where there's new buildings on three sides, it does really stand out. And when you understand that it was a Great Fire in the 19th century that created that condition, it tells you something about where you're sitting in the city and, and how to get from where that is to somewhere else. So you're locating and moving around through the origin stories, through the background and that shared connection that people who live there already have with their land and their city or their environment. Absolutely, yeah. Dinhianicus are a valuable Irish resource, illuminating formation of landscape features and throwing light on legendary ancestors, as well as one-off transforming events. But then, as you found, every community has its multi-layers of oral and written stories, all with its own unique story to tell. And what got me so intrigued and excited when you got in contact with me was the way that you were including and absorbing the, the concept of Dinhianicus into your own work. And I'd very much like to hear more about Dinhianicus in town planning. Oh, I'd love to, Chris. And, you know, you... I don't know if before this podcast, anyone has put the and between Dinchanicus and town planning. Probably not. But while I was at MIT, probably not. But while I was at MIT, I, I uh, really stuck to Tony Lee. He became a fantastic mentor and friend and teacher to me uh, with his own incredible story that could probably take up another hour. But the 
epistemology he taught us, the way he taught us to understand the city and change and urban development was about understanding the interweaving strands of people, planning, and place. That is, who are the people? Where did they come from? Why and how? Who are the people that have left? When, why, and how? You know, what about the place changed those people? What about those people changed the place? And then what were the planning responses? And understanding that uh, the word planning for city planning is itself sort of an oxymoron because planning is fundamentally reactionary, right? It's the dominant culture reacting to whatever changes, positive or negative, happened over the last few years as the people and the place have changed. And if we're going to know what we're reacting to as planners, we should probably listen to these stories, no? I did read through the info you sent me, and I, I will add a link to what you sent me on Tony Lee. We've, we've got things the wrong way around for too long. Um, yeah, but go on. Tell me a bit more. Yeah. Well, I mean, your point about uh, getting it the wrong way around for too long, I think is in part what the city planning field, at least in America, has been for the last few decades. It's been trying to balance off planning's early years which were very deeply rooted in the English version of the Enlightenment, supposedly scientific method applied to planning. And those methods dominated 20th century America. And the concept that culture made people and not the other way around was dominant. So that the white men who kind of originated the field in the pseudoscientific mold and made tremendous decisions, very impactful decisions over the last century they regarded these kinds of histories and stories, most especially if they came from an oral or a lower class tradition, they thought they were of no use, no importance. Uh, they valued instead supposedly neutral data-based stories, if you will. Um, but in doing so, left massive amounts of data on the curb. All of these stories, all of this indigenous ecological knowledge, all of the history of how and why the places were what they were. They just left that on the curb. And the results for African Americans, especially for Chinese Americans, especially, um, and lower class and immigrant peoples generally, including uh, several times that the Boston Irish really suffered from it. it. It's hurt a lot of us. And for, for us as a field to chart a path forward, I think it's very important for us to understand that it's both dynamics, that culture can make people and people can make culture that people make place but place shapes people and you know to some degree the differences between the boston irish the irish still on the island and the australian irish may be indicative of that mm. it, w it was the same problem i found when i came to uh, discover the irish stories but nevertheless the books that i came across first described the irish stories right up until the 20th century the early part of the 20th century as being low of tone and of no literary value whatsoever. And that's actually a quote. Of course, it's better now. But I sometimes still notice examples of this um, marginalisation of Irish material. Some time ago, I was, I was watching a BBC documentary on early Irish coastal monastic settlements. I think Iona was involved. It ended with the presenter standing on a rugged promontory and gazing out at the wild and misty waves. As he mused on the dramatic landscape, he pondered what stories the monks might have imagined about what lay out there beyond the hidden horizon. Now, this presenter could have drawn on the Imrova, that whole catalogue of journey stories which is available 
in Irish texts, but it seems that the programme makers and the authoritative presenter himself was unaware of this class of stories. But there is the point, though, the lack of interest and lack of knowledge about the Irish stories just might have saved some of our greatest stories from travesty TV tellings. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to me. I think what you expressed is part of the reason I only came to the Irish stories really this late and through your podcast. I remember as a ooh, 11 or 12 year old going to my local library, uh, we were being taught the classical myths in school, and I was curious what might there be of Irish ones. And I was able to find one or two books that were in the reference section that I pulled out and were completely undecipherable to me. A lot of theeing and thouing, references with no context. And and I, I just put it down and sort of forgot about it other than, you know, the ways you kind of casually encounter Finn or Cuchulain or so on um, in, in the course of life. And it, it really wasn't until I came to you that I could come to them. Well, I have the same journey in a way because uh, I grew up loving mythology. I became familiar with the authorized version of the Bible from probably birth. And I love the language. I just love the, the sound of the words and the names and suddenly these weird and wonderful stories. And it led me straight into mythology. And yeah, like everybody else, I read the Greek legends, the Roman legends, I read the Norse legends, then I got into the early Mesopotamian. Ancient Egypt has some wonderful folk stories, some great stories. But one year when I was teaching a class of seven or eight-year-olds, we had a program which was covering Iron Age life in England. So I went off like a good teacher to find lots of books. And, you know, you find Roman children go to the theatre, Roman children go shopping, Roman children have a feast, Roman children do all sorts of things. You want to find something on Iron Age Celts or Iron Age people. They called them Celts at the time. And uh, you might find one book. And by page three, it showed somebody in a white robe with leaves round their heads and waving a golden sickle. You know, it, it was just... It was ridiculous. <laughs> and in the end, I said, I've got to go and find this for real. And I, I work through the, uh, how do we, you know, the, um, uh, the Celtic Twilight books with their these and thous. And it wasn't until I really discovered the uh, Celtic Heritage and the Brin Brinsley Rees books. Uh, and it, it pushed me so far that I wanted to come and find out for myself. So, yeah, I, it is hard. And this is why one of the things I'm so keen to do now is to provide modern versions for children, which are textually, you know, keep to the text, keep to the story in the late Iron Age context, early medieval context, but are actually suitable for telling to children because they're just as good at any Marvel story and a lot better, I think. So enough of that rant. That's my rant. Well, no, I, I want I want one more word on that, which is just that... um. You know, with a three-year-old who I've named Neve, you know, her favorite movie at the at the moment is Disney's Brave, which, you know, is Iron Age Dunbrock, which happens to be on the shores of the Irish Sea, just on the east side of them. Um, and, and I think, you know, now that I've seen it 50 times, the, uh, the people who made that movie did a fairly good job of representing the time. And so I've been trying to slowly bring my daughter a bit south east, or excuse me, southwest west and uh, and pick up some of the Irish stories. And sometimes I wish that uh, the Irish stories had the glamour that Disney or Pixar or Marvel have put on some. And I love what Cartoon Saloon is doing out of Kilkenny. I, I want a lot more of that because I, I've got to find some way to get these stories into her. Yeah, well, then they weren't written for three-year-olds and some of them are quite... I, <laughs> 
it's funny when I'm working with uh, with children. I'm I'm an ex infant teacher, so I'm I'm very interested in the ways in which we can introduce things to children. I've got one or two stories I've managed to take down to the point where, oh, Fergus, Fergus McLeager and the Lubicorns, you know, the uh, where he goes to the bottom of the sea. And mm-hmm. I've tried that one with her. That one's great. But there are some that really work. The story of Neven O'Sheen isn't one of them. <laughs> it's not It's not the easiest fun story. We'll have to work on that one. No, no, they weren't. <laughs> It is a story from slightly later, or the way it's come to us now, is uh, from the strand that Isolde always refers to as the baptism and death. <laughs> baptism and death. <laughs> because you've got to, if you, you know, you've got to come back, repent, be Christian, and then die. <laughs> That's right. Do away with you. You can't survive. You know, the words, you've, you've got to go because you're left over from the old cycle. Yeah, it's one I've had more trouble with. But as I found, the punchline was a little too apt because at the end of the day, it doesn't turn out well for people who do not listen to Nia. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Chris, you've mentioned to me that you've started taking children out into the landscape to the share the stories. and I'd love to hear more about how that works. Well, it's it's really a sort of um, landscape archaeology 101, because I want to get children to look at the places. This is all primary children I'm talking about, though I'm sure it would work with older children. I want them to get them to really look closely, to observe and imagine and think about the places they see every day on their walk to school or um just uh, walking up the lane to a country school. So we call them surprise walks. And I ha- I make sure that uh, a few of the children, we allocate them as the photo takers. Uh, so, so they aren't all carrying phones or cameras. We just want a few of them. And I get them to look in, certainly in small towns, I get them to look up because we walk, we don't look up. We look in shop windows. We look in the modern parts of the town, in the windows, the doors. But once you look up in older towns, it's the roofs and the the top parts of the buildings that really change. And suddenly you see shapes, you see the chimneys, for instance. Why is that there? Why has that house got six? Why has it got six chimneys? Yes. <laughs> this is a Tony Lee thing, Chris. This is something Tony taught me. And it was amazing. Whenever you walk around with this man, you know, and walking the city of Boston, which he knew arguably better than anyone else alive at the time. And he would still just look like a curious child. And I think that's why he knew so much about it. He would look up and around and he taught us, watch the chimneys uh, to think about how many people live there or when, you know, watch the satellite dishes, the names on the mailboxes, the the gas meters, all of it. <laughs> yeah, they have no idea, of course, since very few people have open fires in every room anymore, the idea that you need six chimneys. Or um, another example, you see a shape of a, a building that's completely different and suddenly you begin to recognise it and see it's actually an old cinema or... Uh, and some t- Ghost buildings. Yeah, ghost buildings. This was another tiny favourite, was pointing out the ghost buildings. Sometimes, though, you can be fooled, like a new building is made to look old because nowadays people like bare stone. Sometimes the old building can be rendered and the new one may be just pointed stone. And uh, you can do this in the country, down an ordinary lane. We, I took a group of children for a walk just down the lane past their school. Uh, we found an old tractor road, you know, the roads the tractors take. You see the gates lining up across fields and you know that 
that's an old route, which has now been left as a sort of ghost walking route, but it's now the tractor road. Or you pass somewhere and you see an old tumble-down shed, and yet it has uh, pink roses blossoming in front of it, or a hazel tree. Who plants a rose bush outside an old shed? And you go, where would you find a rose? Where would you plant a rose? You plant it outside your house. And you suddenly look at this in a different way. In this old shed, which is just a bit of a cattle shed or something, you realise that that's a house. And then you see another one and another one. And then you go back and look at the old maps and you suddenly realise that there was once a village near this school. And what you're looking at is a pre-famine village. And now all you've got is the last of the roses that were planted by the people who lived there. And it's that sort of thing that suddenly the landscape changes completely and you can see the stories in the landscape. So it's one of my favorite activities. Chris, you're, you're doing for these children in their small town and, and rural settings exactly what MIT's Department of Urban Studies and Planning uh, teaches its graduate students in you know the very urbanized area of Boston, Massachusetts, and Cambridge, and Somerville, and so forth. Um, I, I can think of urban analogs to everything you just mentioned, and they're what tell us the stories, as we were both saying, that those Dinchankas are what teach us about what was there in ways that sometimes the histories can't or don't. What we can come back to is local stories told by grandparents or um, aunts and uncles and the other great treasure of uh, Ireland, uh, the school folklore survey from 1936 to 38, where children in all schools were asked to go home, ask parents and grandparents and neighbours for stories under a set of headings. And then they were all kept, they're all online, they're all available. So you have this set of stories written down 80 years ago, but many of them are by people who were... 80 at the time. So you can jump 160 years in one go. There was a story of a boy who um, fell through a, into a lake and was rescued by a group by somebody's grandfather. And I was talking to a group of older people, of um, seniors one day, and one of them said, oh, I remember that. That was so-and-so's granddad. I never heard that story. Well, I never knew he did that. And suddenly this heroic action from over 100 years ago is suddenly remembered again. And that's really bringing stories to life. It, it's uh, it's quite a treasure. But there are ways of getting at it. You know, I'm no town planner. I'm just somebody who wants to get children looking, looking, that's all, and see the stories in the landscape. <laughs> but I'm glad you like it. It's one of my favorite games. <laughs> well, uh, well, I personally, Chris, can think of few fewer modes of education that I believe will be more important to that generation. Um, to adapting us to what comes next, you know, to understand, you know, my daughter, these children, they will face climate change, they will face flooding and fires and winds and other things that we have not seen for over a century uh, in our cultures and heritages. And, you know, in the, in the places I've called home, it's incredibly important. You're right. You're, yeah, I, I think it is important. One of the things that comes out of an, of an activity like that with a group of school children of between sort of nine and 13 is that you can get them then to say, well, this story came from 80 years ago. What sort of story might be told of this same place in 80 years time? And that a few years ago, you get an almost sci-fi answer. Now you get answers that are very, very different indeed. You know, it's, it's a way of actually approaching climate change, not as something that might happen, but something that 
is happening and will happen and something they in, in their lifetimes will have to deal deal with because it's inevitable. The level at which we it's going to happen, we don't know, but change is inevitable. So yeah, it's a way in to that. Change is inevitable. And you know, you just mentioned teaching children to think 80 years ahead. And for town planning, that's an incredibly important mindset to impart on children. It is very much not the way we think of things in America. Um, you know, I'm sitting right now in Seattle, Washington, which is on the unceded territory of the Duwamish and other Coast Salish peoples. And white, European, Christian, whatever label you want to put on it, settlers have only been here since the 1840s to the 1860s, really. So, and Gortemore on. And in America, there's a lot of scholars of race talk about American amnesia and the functioning of this current country as a focus on the present to the exclusion of reconciling and repairing mistakes of the past, and also to the exclusion of having responsibility for several generations into the future. You know, and to contrast, the indigenous peoples here often talk about a concept of eight generations or seven generations of responsibility, which is the three before you, yourself, and the three after you, and, and eight is then pushing it to the future. And, you know, I found some of that in the Irish stories, and it's just such a wonderful way to think about things and feels... Um, like something in America we really need to learn. Mm. It's quite true. It took three generations to establish a new status or change in status, and then it took another three generations to keep it. So this is under old Irish law. Whether that's good or bad, I don't know. But status could change, but it had to be, it had to be maintained. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying all attitude towards status in those stories is necessarily what we want. Oh, I would say not. <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, there is an understanding of the need for sustainability. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sometimes if they knew something that we need to relearn. You know, some of the cutting edge science I read in, in other fields points towards this. The, you know, cutting edge research. Epigenetics. Yes, exactly. Epigenetics and how trauma can affect our telomeres so that trauma can travel three generations. You know, so what my grandmother's parents went through has an impact on my life, right? And, um, you know, similarly in ecology, Suzanne Simard's amazing book, The Mother Tree, and the cutting edge in ecological and forestry science that really flips the model on its head, where, again, the mostly Protestant white men who developed the field um, viewed nature as competition. <gasps> yes. And what we're finding evidence for is much more collaboration, and specifically in forestry, between various species of tree and plant alongside uh, fungal networks. And of course, the continental cults are a different thing, et cetera. We only know as much as we know. But when I read about their oak groves and the way they studied them, there's this glimmer of, I wonder if they were looking at the mycorrhiza, if they were following the connections. You can do it visibly with oak. You can do it visibly with some species. And similarly here in the Northwest, you know, the indigenous people knew things that we need to know. I don't think it's particularly magical. I think it's all about that need to to observe, consider and reflect. Um yeah, and that's what we need to do too. So yeah, it's not it's not magical stuff we don't know. It's just stuff that we don't do. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think what we're getting at now is, again, this naming, understanding. And part of Dinhianicus is very much about the law of names and that the naming still retains important and relevant information. Oh, you've got some examples of this, haven't you? 
Absolutely. And, and there are fun examples uh, growing up in a place like Boston, where we have a lot of very odd names uh, that have very interesting histories that most people don't know. And it's, it's always interesting explaining, particularly to newcomers, uh, or even to longtime residents. I had an uncle who had no idea why the Back Bay, South Cove, South Bay, all these neighborhoods with water place names that are in fact now land had water place names. And that is a really important thing to know if you live in Boston, because A, all of those places that are named after water, they were water, right? It's like Hong Kong, like some other cities. Boston is largely built on made land. A lot of the center of town, a lot of the uh, most valuable urbanized areas are on uh, spots that were tidal flats and marshland or even just water that they filled. And when you look at uh, maps of projections of sea level rise over the next century, they look a whole lot like maps of Boston before any of that filled. Mm -hmm. And so if you want to understand your sea level rise risk as maybe a property owner or as a city planner or an emergency planner or any of the other ways you might need to know that, it's an important thing to know. And the contours of the naming in Boston can tell that story quite frequently. Yeah, that's a good example, that is. <laughs> and, you know, another one in, that's quite prevalent in Massachusetts is paying attention um, particularly to town names, place names in general. But before the American Revolution, town names in the Massachusetts colony took usually one of two types. They were either an adaptation of the indigenous name, Massachusetts itself is an example, um, or they were copies of English town names. Boston, Braintree, Weymouth, Hull, so on and so forth. Very occasionally a settler's family name instead. Uh, Quincy is an example of that. But this thing happens after the American Revolution where, you know, the newly minted country wants to use neither, you know, the English town names that they had just fought a revolution against, uh, nor the indigenous names that they were um, trying to wipe the culture off the face of the planet. Mm. And... Instead, you see a lot of names taken from leaders of the American Revolution, whether or not they ever set foot in that place, uh, which is the case of the corner of the world I grew up in, in Randolph, Massachusetts. Randolph was uh, a Virginia settler, slaveholder, president of the Continental Congress, who, who never once sat, stepped foot in that place. Mm -hmm. And the other place they stand out for me is really in the contested place names. You know, th those three examples I gave tell us something of our history, and I think especially the power dynamics in our history, who controlled the land enough to say what it was called, at what time, for whom, right? But we can test these ideas. So from where I'm sitting, if it, if it weren't 13 degrees and drizzly today, I would be able to see uh, Tahoma, which is the snow-covered volcano about 40 miles south of me, um, and that's uh, my attempt to pronounce the way indigenous people would have called it. And on maps here, it's Mount Rainier. Rainier being, uh, I believe, an Englishman who who was never on the side of the planet. You know, a lot of the initial British and English uh, explorers and cartographers to explore this part of the world just named things by, <laughs> they gave their friends names to things. Oh, that mountain is now Rainier. Um, you know, interestingly, they, they took the name Tahoma for the mountain and, and named the nearby city that. So even today, the city of... Oh, that's where I've heard it, as a, a city, yeah. Yeah. Tacoma. Yep, Tacoma, which then Toyota named a truck after as well. But, um, you know, there are these contested place names in so many places that I feel really point at not just history, but how live that history is. In Boston, we have 
Nubian Square or Dudley Square. You know, you have Londonderry or Derry. Indeed. There's the Republic of China or Taiwan. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I guarantee that at least a few listeners squirmed at least on a couple of those. And, and I feel that's the point, right? That we need to understand how far back these divisions go if we're going to heal them going forward. Yeah, I agree about Derry. And you, you would have the same sort of situation here with anglicized names, then they get retranslated to Irish and so on. And it really can, can cause some surprising confusions and make etymology very difficult sometimes. Well, I'll react to that. I found that really interesting in terms of the Tinchankas, because if you can't get the story from the name, you know, your history is obscured a bit. But in the Dijankas, there are places we don't know the names of anymore, and, and some that may have been different, but they can point a path towards some of that story and history, both in a way that um, some of the names whose etymology you cannot trace are failing to do now. Mm. Mm. And uh, because of the, the replacement of English over Irish, the names got lost, and therefore the stories got lost. And although it is possible to connect most places. If you go through the Dinhyanicus, um translations, there are a lot of places that we actually don't know quite where these places were anymore. You can't track down everything. No. And, you know, I think that's um, a tragedy, really, that indigenous people across the world face is that amount of forgetting that we can just never recover because the records have been destroyed and, and the people are gone. I, I can give you a good example of something that's happened here quite recently. The basic address, uh, certainly in the rural areas, contains a townland. You probably know this. So you have your, you know, your local address. You don't have a road and road number. You have a townland. And there can be several families living on the same townland. Now, all these townland names, this one here is Shanra, which means the old fort. And I do know where the old fort was, although it was dug up a very long time ago. But they're all very information rich. Now, recently, the idea was to introduce a postcode. And what was decided on was an air code. It took a long time to take off, but it does get things delivered. The problem is the air code is random and contains no information whatsoever. So we've moved from an information-rich name to an information-poor name. And I suspect that in the end, townlands could vanish. And that would be very sad. Would be. And uh, and maybe in two generations, there will be a hipster movement to get rid of those numbers and find the old town names. We see that with uh, contested place names in city planning quite often. There's this great example. Uh, Dinchanicus I have not written up yet, but intend to, is riffing off of Macduff's Pig to talk about Berkeley Street, or is it Dover Street in uh, in Boston South End, which, you know, Dover Street in the late 19th, early 20th centuries was uh, your slum. It's, it was not a good place to be. Uh, it was a place of last resort. And, and to this day, the largest um, homeless men's shelter in the city is on that street. But in the mid-20th century, when the city was trying to become more upscale and create economic development, they changed the name to East Berkeley Street, which ties it to the, the more expensive Back Bay neighborhood. <laughs> but now, another couple generations later, uh, the neighborhood associations in that area want to change it back to Dover Street, which they feel to be more historic and more unique rather than a borrowing of uh, the name from the neighborhood next door. Oh, yes. Now, that could be a good story, and I'm looking forward to seeing it. Yeah, I think all these things are really memories of really important landmarks that 
continue to be valued long after their original significance is either obscured or just forgotten. You know, whether we are aware of it, Din Hyanaka's stories connect us and colour our lives. Well, and Chris, that is another point where uh, it connects so well to city planning. And, and speaking of colour and connection specifically, you know, you just brought to mind for me my Blue Hills back in Massachusetts and also incredible longevity of Iron Age roads that we see all over uh, the Great Blue Hill, which uh, would count as an Irish mountain, is the tallest point um, you can see from the harbor from outside of Boston. And growing up near it, it was a space that was always sacred to me. When I needed to skip school and go spend some time in the woods, it was where I would go. <laughs> and over the years as an adult, learning how sacred, how much more sacred still, it was to the Massachusetts people, um, that it was part of their indigenous territory. It was, in fact, their winter village. They summered by the beach and enjoyed all-you-can-eat shellfish parties like uh, like they did in ancient Sligo in the Neolithic times and such. And they spent their winters in the Blue Hills quarrying stone and making tools. And we have evidence going back, I want to say 10,000 years, and the tools have been found all over the continent. And walking around the hills today, you can find bits of evidence, piles of stone that look natural until you think about the fact that it was an Iron Age quarry. You know, and similarly, Iron Age roads. And it, it's true where I grew up, where, hell, North Main Street, where I grew up, was a Massachusetts trail. And um, Route 28 in Massachusetts, I believe, is more or less based on trails that connected the Massachusetts people to their neighbors to the south who <laughs> had just encountered the Plymouth colony as well. Mm. But we see it in Europe, and uh, Graham Robb's The Ancient Paths was incredibly enlightening, where he posits that there are roads in France and elsewhere today that you could drive along, he biked along, that date not just to the Roman roads, as is fairly well known, but that the Romans themselves built them on earlier Celtic roads that were um, laid out sort of to take you from one mountain pass to another uh, and or along um, a line from the solstice because they could navigate the, the deep woods of the continent through the sun. And we still have those roads today. And again, for urban planning, understanding how, why, and when our infrastructure developed can teach us about people, but it can also teach us about what we should do with that going forward to make our places better for the people who live in them and the people who would like to live in them. The Romans never came to Ireland, but we have plenty of ancient roads. They knew the most effective ways to get between A and B. Mind you, when you talk about ancient roads, there are quite a lot of remains of the old Iron Age wooden roads. There's a really good one at a place called Corley in uh, County Longford. Now, that one is really special. It's a whole section of wooden pathway dated to, exactly dated, to 148 BCE. Through dendrochronology, it can be exactly dated. But the interesting thing is that th this pathway seems to be connected to the early story of Aidan and Mither and is referenced in the text because in the story Mither is supposed to have been watched by people who weren't supposed to be watching him create this road and therefore it was made with a floor in it. Now the real pathway is known to for some reason only have been used for 10 years and then it was got then it was buried. So it seems to connect to in some way to this unusual story of the text. So there is an actual artifact and an early story connecting directly. These these roads do have a lot to tell us, both in the everyday world and in the great world of story. 
Genealogy is also one of the great roles of the old Irish poets. And I know you're particularly interested in genealogy. Yeah, I, I kind of felt backwards into genealogy, really, as I've been working on a book about affordable housing in America. And if you can't tell by now, I have to look back to figure out how to go forward. So in doing so, I asked the question, well, how have we in America tried to address the problem of housing poor people over time? And found myself all the way back, actually, with the English poor laws and the plantation of Ulster. Um, you know, and, and similarly, because I'm kind of the first generation to leave the lower working class and become a, a professional class person, tracing what happened with us. You know, both trauma and wealth are intergenerational. So to understand my own family's story and why we spent so many years uh, with relatively insecure housing, why we've had so many touch points with various kinds of public and affordable housing in America over time, I went back and I started with my grandmother who raised me. She uh, in conjunction with my mother, praise to my mother as well, but many times lived with my grandmother and she was a daughter of immigrants. Her father was from Curry, way south in uh, Ashenray Parish in Sligo, and her mother was from uh, Killiner, which is outside of Glasgow, which is outside of Athlone. And tracing that history found some things that really sort of shocked me and are still reshaping the way that I'm thinking about housing and poverty in America. Uh, three examples that I hope will end up in the final version of the book. I mentioned the Mians and found out that so this would be my great-grandfather, my Grammy's dad. His parents were, the census record says illiterate, but after listening to you, I would prefer to say oral culture, farmers, you know, and whose history in that area goes back farther than we can trace. And why I know that is there's a Clooney Mian. So there's an abandoned village not far from where he grew up that has his surname. And these things just kind of echo I was also very lucky I stumbled upon the contemporary history of Sligo Town and Country by O'Rourke. It was published in 1902 when uh, Thomas Meehan was just you know, a toddler rolling around in the dirt in Sligo. He left later during the Irish Civil War, and it's never been clear to us whether it was uh, economic or political that caused him to leave. Mm -hmm. He ended up meeting Mary Jane Keena in Boston's Hibernian Hall. They both immigrated as, un we would call it unskilled labor. I feel like that's unfair, but that's sort of the word that's used. Um, and as many did, met at this Irish dance hall. It still exists. It's still called Hibernian Hall. But today, it is at the heart of Boston's African-American community in Nubian Square. And uh, before I knew the story, I actually worked in the building as an intern for uh, the Madison Park Community Development Corporation there. Mm. And it just came straight forward. And in a couple more dramatic ways um, in the genealogy and the housing stories, I, uh, I'm not very much in touch with my mad inside. So I had to really go to the book research. And, and what I found was has reshaped some of the ways I think about things that the first uh, generations of Maddens to come to America in my line uh, were refugees from Angortamore. They landed in an Irish slum in Boston South End that is a location that became a flashpoint for conflict between uh, the sort of Yankee... Anglo-Saxon Protestant ruling class and the emerging Irish refugee population. They demolished the neighborhood completely. There is um, a belief in slum clearances in America from the 1840s. What else happened in the 1840s that they started doing this then? Uh, up until the really quite recently, and the original impetus was about public health, because when you have a lot of starving people uh, with you know, cramming every square foot of space for a place to sleep in between shift work at the docks or whatnot, disease is going to spread. And we're seeing that echo again today in America, uh, 
where recent immigrants uh, performing those sorts of jobs tend to be in overcrowded homes and, and were hurt by COVID. But in any case, I found out, you know, I'm researching affordable housing. I find out that the first Maddens and the first one born here shares my name of James Madden was also a victim of a racist slum clearance. It's, it's also an area that the Cathedral of the Holy Cross, which was the pride of the Boston Irish in the late 19th century, it was an Irish architect. It was a sign of the Irish having arrived and built something. Uh, that's at the point, really, that they tear down the neighborhood across the street where the Maddens were and they build an elevated train line. Uh, right past the cathedral to hide its facade and to hide its architectural beauty. They left the land vacant for decades until the um, legendary, and, and I think we can even say mythological, thanks to uh, the Rascal King novel, uh, Boston Irish Mayor Curley got money from the federal government to build the cathedral public housing projects there. Mm. So the spot where my family landed is now public housing today. And, and that was almost a little too convenient for the book I'm writing. But what I found, and they weren't the last! Because that then happens to the next two generations. So they're displaced from the South End. They end up in an area of Roxbury. Uh, for people who know Boston very well, it's in, now an industrial area that's sort of in between uh, the Orchard Gardens projects in Nubian Square and the more industrial uh, Newmarket area of Roxbury, Dorchester. And there are one or two houses you can still see to get a, a hint of what the neighborhood might have been. But the addresses where they lived... And, uh, and the people they married to continue generations of my family and all those Irish surnames just wiped out. Yeah. To think about that, that we had three generations of um, being victims of slum clearance. And to be very clear, there was no recompense. <laughs> it was, we're going to demolish your house tomorrow. You need to leave. That was the method at the time and, and really up until the 1970s. Mm. And then I'm the first one to go away to college and to get a graduate. Degree. And there's something about that that sits with me. It's quite a story. And the third story that I'm hoping gets in there and ties us to the history of places as well as to the history of this question of how do we create homes for all, which I know is also a very big question in Ireland these days. Mm. There's family lore, because my mother's maiden name is Fisk, which is not an Irish surname, about some generations ago, someone being disowned for marrying an Irish immigrant. And when I went in and found the documentation, I found not only did uh, my second great-grandfather, Clarence Ellsworth Fisk, marry an Irish immigrant named Teresa Grace McGonigal. She was not just an Irish immigrant, she was a lower class Irish immigrant in the 1860s. And she was from um, Clonmani up in the Inishowen Peninsula, far north there. And Clonmani, as far as I could tell, is known for two things in history. Before her time, there was the Pachin Republic of Eris, which is just such a great story, but I won't tell it here. And um, But of her time, the violent evictions and the campaigns against them and the reprisals against the resistance that really go back to the 1830s, but uh, heightened after Angorta Moore, when uh, people really couldn't forgive the, the cruelty of the evictions at will and you know the rent that was the entirety of the food they had on hand. And so in Clonmani and, and Teresa, when she was a child, would have been, I think there were 126 humans left there in the 1860 census after Angorta Moore, you know, that was the time period where they would burn thatched roofs to make it very quick, where because the locals would sort of uh, come together and prevent evictions, the landlords retaliated by also coming together to evict and they would bring in armed agents of the British state and they would do a dozen families in a day. And I don't have any record that um, my second great-grandmother came to America as a direct result of those evictions. For all I know, she might have been a landlord, but I highly doubt it. She came at 14. You know, it, I think it's quite possible that it was this system of evictions that caused my second great-grandmother to come to America. 
And it was the division between the people that her husband came from and the people that she came from that caused him to be disowned. And so none of that heritage flows through. So again, we the reason to think about this in the context of what I'm doing with this project is thinking about intergenerational wealth and its impact on housing, intergenerational trauma and its impact on social mobility and poverty. And it, it's been shocking to me how close the things are. You know, the legal basis that we have for land title, for tenancy, for eviction, for leases, so on and so forth in this country is directly rooted in the system that was developed in the 18th and 19th centuries by England's early capitalist theorists, in part to, what would be the polite way to say it? There isn't one. To get the greatest of, the, the greatest efficiency out of their farmer tenants as humanly possible. Yes. Usually greed. Would be one way to say it, right? That at the threat of eviction and emigration and death, we can get it all. Yes. Greed. Yes, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. I think largely it was, yes, they talked about efficiency, but it was really, how can we make more money for ourselves? Um, it comes down to greed. Yes. And when that more money became actions that I think would be hard to live with, right? I can't picture what I myself would go through if I kicked my tenant out tomorrow and burnt down the roof of the building to make sure he can't go back. I don't think I would feel very good about myself. I think I would need to tell myself a story about that tenant being not quite human, or maybe it's for their own good. And there's so much of the story of housing and affordable housing in America that really rests on that. And that's true whether we're talking about the Boston Irishes we have or Jews fleeing Eastern European pogroms, and most especially for the indigenous people who have had genocide committed against them, for the African Americans who are victims of chattel slavery and ongoing uh, types of these clearances and attacks on their bodies that continue to this day lesser known also on the West Coast in America to Chinese, and Japanese, and Filipino Americans who suffered many of the same type of uh, racist violence and evictions from their homes that we've been talking about. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah, I wish it was a story that was completely over, but it isn't. No, and that's why we need to tell it. You know, it, it's this functioning. I mentioned American amnesia before, and it is really crucial to improving this place where we live and to making it sustainable and welcoming, that we, we do bring these stories to the life because suppressing them is not leading us in any good places. But bringing stories to life is also just fun sometimes. <laughs> They're not stories of the past. They're stories of the future. Absolutely. They, they belong to the past and the future. And I think that makes them fun. <laughs> yes, yes. It makes them relevant. Yes. I described you also as a story maker, a storyteller, and you promised that you would tell us one of your stories. I, I Would you read for us your Charles River? And maybe this is a good time to talk about Shannon. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I'll preface just by saying this is more of a, a story compiler or mixer than a, a story maker. Story mixer, maybe, in that while I was working on um, my book project on affordable housing, on days when I was hitting some writer's block, uh, I would keep myself going by taking some Irish myth that I'd heard from you or elsewhere and trying to make it new and using it to say something about uh, the place and time that I'm from. So this is my version of the tale of Shannon. It borrows heavily, Chris, on your version, but it is instead about the Charles River. In the days of dreaming, when the indigenous ones still walked freely among the misty mudflats and green hills of Massachusetts, 
there was a well. It was a deep hidden pool, narrowed by points of land boasting nine strong hazel trees, whose red nuts would drop softly into the deep reflecting mirror of the well. Within its depth, the wise ones, the reliable ones, the salmon and the alewife alike, consumed each kernel of wisdom, each nut of inspiration, for did they not sustain the whole world with a nutshell and their great sacrifice? It was a deep place of wonder, of enchantment, of understanding, but above all, a secret place. A secret until Charles. Charles was a young scholar from an old, noble, English family with everything an Englishman could want. Wealth, lineage, titles, men of arms and many acres of newly Christianized land. He lacked only for poetic inspiration, and when his mania came upon him, he reached for it in vain and plunged into the water beneath the hazel trees. Charles believed he alone discovered the well, and he swam down into it. But as Charles reached the well, it transformed into a wave, rode up the land, and spread the seeds of the tree of knowledge along the banks of the river. First, hockey, then medicine, then technology, then music, then terriers, then nobility, then industry, then braille, then keeping time. Charles, his mind raging with the whole of the world's knowledge, desperately shook off the seeds, even the dregs. And when none were left, Charles's slowing, lapping waves left the seeds of the invasive species, the imposters of knowledge. First, conquest, then law, then title, then money, then authority, then exclusivity, then vanity, then extraction, then division. And bit by bit, the great wave that was Charles gave of itself until it was but trickles into the marshy soil. Charles let out a faint cry of exhaustion. Mm, 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 mm. The farmers who heard it couldn't agree on Charles's words, but their guesses gave name to the last towns Charles touched. Charles had possessed but lost true poetic inspiration, the knowledge of the world as spoken from the elders who could still read the land and understand its language. Charles decided he must have it back. He began to flow back towards the well of knowledge, but before the last of him could enter, the well rejected him, for the seeds of the impostors of knowledge contaminated his waters. Charles tried again, and again the well expelled him. Charles tried a third time, on the full moon, at Samhain, at the king tide. He summoned the confidence of the mediocre English nobles from which he descended, and his waters rushed forth, leaving behind the seeds of the impostors of knowledge, until he disappeared into the well land carved into mud and muck behind him. But after twelve hours, the well expelled Charles again. For twelve hours was all the well could take of the haughty Charles. Yet each time Charles would regroup and flow back to the well, only to be expelled back up onto the land twelve hours later, once again. And so, Charles tried ceaselessly, each twelve hours for two hundred and eighty years, to re-enter the well of knowledge. The people who lived on the Charles River's banks prospered from the seeds of knowledge and the seeds of the impostors of knowledge in equal measure. But each twelve hours, the muck Charles left behind while he went down the well assaulted the people's senses. So on Bialtna, Craggy led the people to damn Charles, to keep him away from the well. The people enjoyed the sparkling beauty of Charles at his fullness, moved only by the winds, not by the pursuit of the well of knowledge. But Charles cut off from the well, filled with the refuse of the people and their impostors of knowledge. The city turned its back on Charles and treated him all the worse as his ignorance and pollution grew. Charles, in turn, gladly accepted the corpses of their damned and relished making some himself. Slowly, 
the people began to understand that by damning Charles, they damned themselves in return. But even they could not conceive of letting Charles free. Despite the affront to their honor, they could no longer read the land or understand its language. But when the people's king was denied the Ardri because of this affront to their honor, they lifted their damning of Charles, but kept it locked, freeing just enough so Charles may sip from the well of knowledge. Just a taste, but it calmed Charles so that he grew healthy and sparkled blue. People learned to understand his ripples as he changed his moods, but they still could not understand his language. And so, Charles sips at the well of knowledge, while he and the people on his banks remain damned. Mmm, that's excellent. <laughs> I, I think this story keeps on growing and flowing, doesn't it? It, 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 has a, it takes on a different meaning wherever it goes, because you created an Indianicus of your river. I think it's brilliant. I've recently created a version of Shinnan for younger children. When I re-put it together, suddenly I found it wasn't just about creativity. It definitely had a strong ecological message, just like your story does. You know, I think it is a story for our times and it changes with our times. And part of the fun too is um, every word in that story is both true and absolutely false. Um, you know, hidden in the story is the absolutely true historical story of what happened to that river uh, once English settlers had come upon it, polluted it, what they established along its banks, um, and then how it evolved from you know, a tidal river to a dammed lake to uh, a river with tidal gates that lets us do a little bit. And it's the full true story, and I, I hope it helps on explain a little bit in a weird way of how the Charles and the neighborhoods along its banks evolved the way they did. But it's also, you know, a completely, completely false, silly story. And that's something I do love about the Dinshankas for, for my purposes in urban planning is that we can make something that is a completely fiction, made up fun story and completely true at the same time. And I feel so many of those old stories that uh, try to tell about a place have both of those threads mixed in. and It's grand fun. They have what um, Professor Tolkien would have said. They have applicability. I love your story. I think that's really good. Ah, thank you. And, you know, to your point about it being a story of today, um, I recently re-listened to your Revisiting uh, Shannon podcast to think about this story. And it really struck me on listening to that episode. You know, you recorded it at the same time that uh, The New Yorker published an article called The Really Big One, An Earthquake Will Destroy a Sizable Portion of the Coastal Northwest. The question is when. It's by Catherine Schultz. It's a fun horror read if you live in the Pacific Northwest. It's a fun science story if you don't. And it struck me how close it was to the speculation that you and Isolde were making about Shannon and about related inundation stories uh, and their longevity and what they have to share with us. And where I'm sitting, it is incredibly important because it's about our survival if we're gonna if we're gonna uh, come through the big earthquake that is likely to happen in the next century or two alive. We need to understand this. As I mentioned, uh, European settlers didn't reach this corner of the world until about 160, 170 years ago, and they haven't been here long enough to understand the geology of the place, except through our scientific method that we've evolved in the last hundred years to learn those things. But outside of what geology and our study of you know, the physical formations of this place can teach us through the scientific method, the 
Indigenous oral stories of this place, as well as the Japanese written records, all agree about a massive earthquake and tsunamis occurring about 1700 CE. Um, these locals had oral societies, much like the pre-Christian Irish, and 1700, when that earthquake happened, is you know, well before a century uh, before Europeans arrived and write anything about this part of the world. But 5,000 miles away, the Japanese kept written records on tsunamis going all the way back to 600 years before the Common Era. The quote about, about my earthquake here in 1700 is, On the eighth day of the 12th month of the 12th year of the Genroku era, a 600-mile-long wave struck the coast, leveling homes, breaching a castle moat, and causing an accident at sea. Japanese at the time uh, understood that their tsunamis were the result of earthquakes, as we know firmly, and they noted at the time that it was odd that no one felt an earthquake before this tsunami. Meanwhile, and back in the Pacific Northwest where I'm sitting, just about every indigenous tribe has an earthquake and or inundation story that can be dated to about then. Um, a Western seismologist at one point dated the known stories against known earthquakes and estimated this event at 1701, which very, very closely matches what we know from uh, geological dating and from Japanese history. And the, you know, these are Dinshankas in a sense, but they're also three different ways of knowing coming together, right? A Western scientific data, number-based way of knowing, an indigenous oral Dinshankas truly story way of knowing, and a written history way of knowing that we, we take from the Japanese for this event. And so I was reading about it again to, to be able to say something half intelligent, and I was really struck uh, in the article that the Western scientists and the journalists themselves couldn't help but unintentionally add a Dinshankis to their article. Uh, there's this great quote in the article, the discovery is best illustrated in a place called the Ghost Forest, a grove of Western red cedars on the banks of the Kapalas River. When I paddled out to it last summer, it was easy to see how it got its name. The cedars are spread out across a low salt marsh on a wide northern bend in the river, long dead, but still standing. Right? So it's it, so there might be something innate. We, we like these stories as humans. It's how we understand ourselves. It's how we understand places. And in this very particular case, we need to decolonize our mindset to include these indigenous ways of knowing alongside the Western Enlightenment ones. Because we need to survive the earthquake that's coming. We need to understand the tsunami. We need to understand the inundations and periodic flooding that sea level rise will bring to us. And, um, and sometimes you know, the Western records themselves don't give us what we need to understand what we need for our survival. Well, that's interesting. Mm. And humans are hardwired for story. That includes a sense of the past, the future, and uh, the consequences. And I think this is part of telling stories is what makes us human. Yeah, I, I think it's that important in a way. So stories can change and adapt themselves to differing places, generations, priorities. But a good Dinhyanaka story, an origin story, always has something me memorable to tell. And now I think it's even more relevant. The Dinhyanakas continually remind that it is our interactions with our environment that shape and change it for better or worse. And in the days of the old Irish stories, it was the role of the poet storytellers to ensure that the community kept the environment in balance and warned of the dire results if they failed to do so. Now, 
going slightly away from the the Dinhianicus, the Troimbolcunia, is a great example of the destruction that ensues when rules are ignored for personal gain or power. So we need our poets. But uh, they can be found in all walks of life, including, and uh, no, no, especially town planners. I think about half of my field will love hearing that and be proud and go start writing poetry today and the other half may uh, wave their hands away at this. <laughs> well, look, it's been absolutely a fascinating conversation and uh, I hope we'll go on sharing conversations because I think we've got a lot to share. I would love to, Chris. Thank you so much for the conversation. Thank you for the work that, that brought me to this place for myself and my own creativity and you know my own work in city planning and in writing and not for nothing for uh, the little Bansi named Neve over here who it won't turn out for me well if I don't do what she says. Ah, uh, I <laughs> I think I shall have to find a way of uh, finding stories that for for even younger children it's not not impossible. Um uh, look it's been so much fun and uh, thank you thank you for allowing me to see the Dinhianicus in a completely new light. So, thank you. Thank you for listening to this Stories in the Landscape conversation. Remember, on www.storyarchaeology.com, you will be able to access the whole archive of Story Archaeology podcasts. You can also explore a wide selection of my audio and video stories for children as well as a range of project and support materials for schools. Also, discover information on a number of international arts events and competitions with which Story Archaeology is closely linked. There will be another Stories in the Landscape conversation along soon.